0: Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John this morning. And for those of you who may be visiting with us, which it seems like a number of you are, I see a lot of faces I don't recognize. Again, welcome. It's so good to have you here. We have been studying through the great Gospel of John, and we are here in Chapter 5, and we are really continuing on where we left off last week, where Jesus had gotten himself into trouble with the religious leaders. And they were wanting to kill him for what he said. And last week we ended by saying, stay tuned till next week to find out how Jesus um, gets out of this pickle or maybe digs himself into a deeper hole. It's probably more like it, as we're going to see. But uh, the text we're going to be looking at this morning is John chapter 5, verses 19 through 47. And because of the length of the text, I'm not going to read it. Uh, to begin. But let me just say this by way of an introduction. Let's face it, if anyone today claimed to be God's son sent from heaven, we would think he was either demonically inspired or mentally disturbed, would we not? That's what we thought of Jim Jones, right, who got all the people, right, to drink the Kool-Aid and commit suicide, thinking he was the Messiah. That's what we said about David Koresh, right? The Branch Davidians up in Waco, and so it shouldn't surprise us that the people in Jesus' day thought he was either demon possessed or insane. In fact, that's what uh, John actually said in John chapter ten, verse twenty. Many of them were saying he has a demon as and is insane. Why do you listen to him? And uh, over in Mark chapter three. Verse 21, it says, when his people, his own people, when Jesus' own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. It's like they sent the men with the white coats out to get the the wacko, right? The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub or the devil and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And so that was their assessment that Jesus was either demonically inspired or mentally deranged or disturbed. Well, in the same manner, if anyone today declared that they were equal to God, we would consider them guilty of blasphemy. And so it shouldn't surprise us either that the Jewish religious leaders considered Jesus a blasphemer and wanted to kill Him as a result. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, in other words, we are the same person, it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. It wasn't the first time that they had tried to stone him. And Jesus answered and said, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? Now, why are you stoning me now? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And then, right before the crucifixion, John chapter 19, verse 6, it says, The chief priests and the officials, when they saw Jesus, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. I don't know why you guys want to kill this man. He hasn't done anything, in my opinion, that was worthy of death. He hasn't broken any of the Roman laws. And so they said, We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. And so Jesus' crucifixion was really a culmination of of this ongoing opposition and persecution by the Jewish religious leaders that began all the way back here in chapter 5 and verse 16. Remember from last week, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You say, for what reason? Well, he had healed this um, paralytic by the pool of Bethesda, and that's when things really started to heat up between Jesus and the Jews. And when they confronted him about his unlawful contact uh, conduct on the Sabbath, rather than confronting them back in return for making their man-made rules uh, equal to God's rules or God's commands, Jesus did something even more radical. It's almost like he fought fire with fire, and he upped the ante, and he said, listen, you guys say that your rules... Uh, your additions to the law are equal to God's word. Well, guess what? I'm equal to God. And I, therefore, I have the right to do whatever I want on the Sabbath because I'm God. And in verse 17, he said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Talk about rattling the Pharisee's cage when he said, My father. And uh, not only was Jesus a Sabbath breaker, but he was now a blasphemer. Notice What he says in verse 18, what they said, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but to add insult to the injury, he was also calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, I would say at this point, if they had misunderstood what Jesus meant when he referred to God as my Father surely he would have adamantly denied that he was claiming to be equal to God. It's like, hey, they're about to kill him. He'd say, whoa, whoa, whoa time out, guys. That's not what I meant, right? I, I didn't, that, you, you misinterpreted what I had to say. But that's not what he did. Rather than denying it, he adamantly defended the fact that as God's son, he was equal with the Father. He just, he just ramped it up. And in the verses that follow here, in verses 19 through 47, Jesus presented a compelling case that his claim that he was the Son of God was indeed true. And we're going to see this fact that Jesus is Son of God unmistakably asserted by his own self testimony and undeniably confirmed by other corroborating witnesses. And if you didn't get an outline when you came in this morning, you may want to go back and get one now because it's a little more. Complicated than normal. (laughs) And it would be easier for you to follow along if you had it in front of you, kind of the flow of this passage. Uh, I think there's a few more back there if you want to grab one. But we're going to see two things this morning. First of all, we're going to see the unmistakable assertion of deity in verses 19 through 30. And here we see how Jesus takes the witness stand to testify in his own defense and makes four claims that prove that he is the Son of God. We'll look at those four claims in just a moment. Secondly, we're going to see the undeniable confirmation of deity in verses 31 to 47. And here, Jesus calls uh, calls four other witnesses besides himself to take the stand to testify on his behalf that he is truly the Son of God. And so this morning, what I want you to imagine is that you are in a courtroom and you are a member of a jury. And uh, you are going to hear testimonies this morning, and you are going to hear evidence presented this morning, and at the end of the message, you are going to have to decide if there's enough evidence to prove that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. And So listen carefully, because the verdict is up to you. Let's look first of all at the unmistakable assertion of deity, And again, in verses 19 through 30, Jesus takes the witness stand first to testify in his own defense, and he makes four claims that proves he is the Son of God. First of all, he claims that he shares God's work and will. He shares God's work and will. Verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, stop there for a second, because that little expression, truly, truly, I say to you, is very important uh, in the gospel of John. He uses it 20 times, um, actually two more times uh, here in this passage alone, verses 24 and 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up, pay close attention. What What I'm about to say is very important. In fact, it is the absolute truth. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Well, we know that Jesus already uh, claimed to be working in sync with the Father. Verse 17, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Um, sustaining the universe and, and, and seeking the lost is the work that the Father is doing along with the Son. Uh, nothing that Jesus did was self-initiated or independent of the Father. We know that in Philippians chapter 2 uh, that, that it says, While being God, he, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but when He came to earth in the form of man in the incarnation, He, he, he set aside, right? He, he, he limited His use uh, of, of His divine attributes, And so in the wilderness, um, Satan tempted Jesus to use his divine powers that he had emptied himself of, not that he didn't obtain them or keep them, he just limited them, the use of those independently. So Jesus refused, however, to act independently of the Father. He was totally dependent on the Father and, and the power of the Spirit. And so everything that Jesus did was mimicking or imitating the Father, he says, whatever uh, I see, unless it is something he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, these things the Son also doesn't like matter. So he was simply mimicking or imitating the Father, like Father, like Son. And we know that Jesus is the incarnation of God. God is, uh, he's God in human form. He shows us what God is like, not because he bore a close resemblance to to His Father, but because He was the exact representation of of His Father. We, We know that from Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, makes that statement, Hebrews 1 verse 3, and Jesus is the radiance of His glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. And so we know that the Father and and Son were two hearts beating as one, working together in perfect harmony. Uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one and the same. Same thoughts, same purposes and goals, and same will. Notice verse 30. Just jump down because this verse kind of goes along with verse uh, 19. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative... As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Remember in the garden, Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. He was talking about his human will. At the time, he, he was not looking forward uh, from a human perspective of being separated from his Father. But ultimately, his will was the same as God's will. Uh, but from a human perspective, he was submitting his will um, To the Father. In fact, we we learned in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus was all about doing the will of the Father and working for the Father on behalf of the Father. Look at verse 20. Why? For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And so here is another reference that, that we have multiple references. Well, John 3, 3 um, um, 30, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We know how beloved uh, God's Son was to him, and that motivated him to reveal his plans to him and enable him to do his works. And Jesus was, was going to do some other things that would be even more amazing than he'd already done. He was basically saying, Listen, you think that was something, me healing that guy? Right? Been sick for thirty-eight years, laying by the pool. Uh, that was nothing. you ain't seen nothing yet. And this may have been a reference to what he was about to do in these the, the next signs that he was going to perform and ultimately raising Lazarus from the dead. Which brings us to the second claim. Not only did Jesus share God's work and will, he also shared God's power to save. He shared God's power to save. Verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. Now again, these, these statements, you got to know, were just absolutely getting all over the Jewish religious leaders. I mean, it's just like he, he had already said that God was his Father, called him my Father. But then he just continued to take things that only God could do or titles that only God should have, right, and applies them to himself. And said, I'm the same guy. I can do the same things. And you could just just sense their blood pressure rising as he says these things because they knew the power to raise the dead belonged to who? To God and God alone. And yet Jesus is, is claiming to have the same power to raise the dead. And again, that proves that he is God, right, because he could do that. Now, I don't think Jesus was talking about physical resurrection here. He's going to talk about that in verses 28 and 29. We'll get there in a moment. I think he's referring uh, here in verse 21 to spiritual resurrection or what we would call regeneration Uh, in the same way that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. Talking about regeneration, talking about spiritual resurrection, he goes on to talk more about this in verse 24. Notice he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And again, I think these verses, verses 24 and 25, are, are simply, or excuse me, 25 and 26 um, Yeah, 24, 25, 26, they're they're just expanding on verse 21 and describing how a person is regenerated. And how is that? Well, they're regenerated by hearing Christ and believing Christ. And because Jesus has life in himself, he can give life to anyone he wants, and so he chooses to give eternal life to those who place their trust in him as the only way to be made right with God and to go to heaven. And so he has... The power, he shares God's power to save. Thirdly, he claims to share God's authority to judge. That's what Jesus claimed here. He claimed to share God's authority to judge. Verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Again, getting all over the religious leaders who are hearing this because they know Genesis 18.25 says that God is the judge of all the earth. And you're saying, you're the judge? Well, we know from Scripture that God delegated to Jesus, right, the responsibility to execute judgment upon all men. Paul said this to the, to the men who were gathered uh, at the Areopagus in Athens, Acts 17, verse 31. It says, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul describes how this will go down, this judgment will go down in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution or judgment to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so he's talking about sharing God's authority to judge Now notice verse 27, he talks again about this authority, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That little phrase, Son of Man, is an important term. It's a messianic title used 12 times here in John's Gospel, over 80 times in, in, in all of the Gospels. But uh, this was a reference uh, back to a prophecy of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, seeing a vision of the coming Messiah. He said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. In other words, one looking like a man, Uh, and to him was given dominion. Glory and kingdom to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Clearly, a reference to the coming of the Messiah. And so, when Jesus called himself or referred to himself as the Son of Man, they should have. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, that's back in Daniel chapter 7, right? They should have known this title. And by using it, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. Notice how he goes on here talking about this judgment that God uh, had, had, had ordained for him to execute or delegated to him to execute. He says, verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now here in verses 28 and 29, I do think that Jesus is referring to bodily resurrection or physical resurrection. He's talking about the future resurrection of unbelievers and believers. And we know that um, believers will be resurrected um, and, and, and united with their glorified bodies, right? Uh, their souls and their bodies come back together at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 13. We, we read about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to what it says. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus... In other words, those who have died, uh, they'll come back with Jesus at the rapture. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, those of us who are still alive when Christ returns, uh, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord and so what's going to happen is that Jesus will come back at the rapture the trumpet will sound and those who have died in Christ their bodies and no matter what state of decay they are will be resurrected from the ground or the ocean or wherever they are and they're going to be reunited with the soul and they're going to have a glorified body that they'll have for all eternity in heaven. And then those of us who are alive and remain if you're alive when the rapture takes place you're just going to instantly get zapped. You're going to instantly get glorified, right? And uh, you, you, you will be instantly um, in heaven, in a heavenly state, in a heavenly body, a glorified body. How about unbelievers? When, when does this, this judgment of unbelievers take place? Well, it happens at the great white throne. We learn that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation chapter 20, a familiar portion of Scripture, the great white throne Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from those from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death. And Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake. Of fire, you don't see anybody going to heaven in this in this at at this judgment, do you? It seems like everybody at the great white throne judgment is just being resurrected and sent straight to hell. Why? Because their name is not written in the book of life. In other words, everybody who goes to the great there, none of nobody's name at the great white throne is written in the in, in the book of life. It's already the judgment has already been done, and so. This is a little bit of eschatology, a little bit of future things, a theology of what's going to happen in the future. This is what Jesus taught about the end times. Um, and you think about this, that no matter whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you are going to be resurrected from the dead. You're going to get a glorified body either to enjoy heaven or to endure hell. Your choice. What happens? What happens? Notice what Jesus says here in verse 29, it may seem confusing at first, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, in other words, these will go to heaven, those who, who, who um, have, have done good deeds, and those who committed the evil deeds, they're going to go to hell. You say, whoa, time out. Uh, is Jesus implying here that salvation is based on works by our deeds, Right? Well, we know that can't be what he's teaching because that would contradict the rest of Scripture. In fact, it would contradict the rest of the Gospel of John. Um, John chapter 6, verse 28, listen to what Jesus says. Someone asked him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? In other words, hey, we want to do some works. We want to get to heaven. What do we need to do? Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That was the work that he was looking for. That was the good deed if you will. It was believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever does good deeds shall not perish but have everlasting life. Is that what your Bible says? No, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. But he goes on talking about the judgment. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In other words, we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works, right? For by grace you saved uh, through faith. It's not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, if you're truly saved, you're going to live differently than you did before you came to know Christ. And good works don't, don't save you, they simply prove that you're saved. They're the root of salvation, or excuse me, they're not the root of salvation, they're the fruit of salvation. They're not the cause of salvation, they're the effect of salvation. And so Jesus is, again, sharing this claim that he shares God's authority to judge. But there's one more claim he makes, and it was probably the most shocking claim that he makes here in John chapter 5. And that is he shares God's honor. Back to verse 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. I mean, I can just see the the, the, the religious leaders looking for rocks. Because here Jesus is claiming that the Father wanted Him to receive the same honor and glory as He did. And they knew that the Scriptures clearly taught that they were only to worship God and God alone, and that God does not share His glory with anyone. But here Jesus is telling them to worship Him just like they do God. And in fact, He later prayed, had the audacity in their minds to pray that God would glorify Him alongside Him in heaven. John 17, 5, the high priestly prayer, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Listen, if I got up here and I Prayed that prayer. I mean, you guys would be like looking for a new pastor. Like, this guy's, you know, off his rocker. He's gone off the deep end, right? What does this prove? That Jesus is God. He's the only one that has a right to this glory. God said, I don't share my glory with anyone. And he didn't strike Jesus dead, right? Some, Some crazy guy just just wanting to be glorified in heaven alongside the father no this was appropriate for him to pray this and jesus went on to say that if you don't honor the son you don't honor the father john 17:3 this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent john 14:6 i am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but what through me and so listen, he said, listen, if you're not honoring me, you're not honoring the Father. In fact, the way you're treating me, okay, you're dishonoring the Father. And, and bottom line is, I'm not the blasphemer, you guys are. You're the ones guilty of blaspheming the Father because you're rejecting His Son. You may have heard this story I want to read it to you because I think it really captures this concept of honoring the son, and when you honor the son, you honor the father. A rich man and his son loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection, from Picasso to Rembrandt. They would often sit together and admire the great art pieces. When the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son went to war. He was very courageous and died in battle while rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and grieved deeply for his only son. About a month later, there was a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands. He said, Sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. He talked often about you and your love for art. And that's when the young man held out a package. He said, I know this isn't much. I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father opened the package, and it was a portrait of his son painted by that young man. He stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father's eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. He said, Oh, no, sir. I could never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. Well, the father hung that portrait over the mantel. Every time visitors came to his home, to look at his great art collection, he would always take them to see the portrait of his son first before he showed them any other of the great works that he had in his home. The man died a few months later. There was a great auction of all of his paintings. Many well-known art collectors gathered, excited to see the great paintings and have an opportunity to purchase one for, the collection, one for their collection. On the platform, however, sat one lone painting. The painting of the father's son. And the auctioneer pounded his gavel. We will start the bidding with this picture of the son. Who will bid for this picture? There was silence. Then a voice in the back of the room shouted, we want to see the famous painting. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? A hundred, two hundred. Another voice shouted angrily, we didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs and the Rembrandts and the Picassos. Get on with the real bids. But the, still ox, but the auctioneer still continued, the sun, the sun, who'll take the sun? Finally, a voice came from the very back of the room. It was the longtime gardener of the man and his son. He said, I'll give $10 for the painting. Being a poor man, that was all he could afford. We have 10. Who'll bid 20? Give it to him for 10. Let's see the master, someone said. $10 the bid. Won't someone bid 20? At this point, the crowd was becoming very angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. And so the auctioneer pounded the gavel, going once, going twice, sold for $10. A man sitting in the second row shouted, now let's get on with the auction. The auctioneer, however, laid down his gavel and said, I'm sorry, the auction is over. The people looked and said, well, what about all the paintings? He said, I'm sorry, when I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will, and I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until now. Only the painting of the son would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including all the paintings. And so the man who took the son gets everything. Of course, you see the connection, right? God gave his son. 2000 years ago to die on a cross, and much like that auctioneer, the message today is the Son, the Son, who will take the Son? Because if you take the Son, right, you get everything. But if you don't take the Son, if you reject the Son, then you are, in essence, rejecting God Himself. And so, all these things that Jesus said about Himself really, again, are only things that are true of God or or that God can do. So the obvious conclusion is that Jesus is God, like Father, like Son. So we see here the unmistakable assertion of deity. But Jesus goes on. And and, and next we're going to see the undeniable confirmation of deity because Jesus knew that even his own personal testimony of himself, his own defense was not going to be enough for these people. Notice verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Probably a reference to God there in verse 32, or it could be a reference to these four witnesses that he's about to introduce um, uh, here to, to testify on his behalf. That word testify, important word here, in the Gospel of John, used 47 times. It's the word in the Greek, marturion, where we get the word martyr. It's the word for witness or, or testi- testimony or testify. Uh, in fact, he uses that word uh, 10 times just in the rest of the chapter alone. And he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Well, it, it's not that it's not true. It, it just wouldn't hold up in the court of law at that time. Uh, Jesus knew that... His own testimony would not be sufficient um, in, a, in a Jewish court of law because, according to Old Testament law, you had to have two or three witnesses uh, to uh, verify a, a claim or an accusation. And so, Jesus not only provided two witnesses or even three witnesses, he provided four unimpeachable witnesses to verify his personal testimony that he was indeed. God's son. You say, who were these witnesses? Well, the first one he calls to the stand in his defense is the forerunner, John the Baptist. Verse 33, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so here is Christ's divinely appointed forerunner, the one that God sent before him to prepare the way for him, to testify on his behalf. And Jesus, or excuse me, John knew exactly who Jesus was and he faithfully declared the truth of his sonship or his deity uh, to the people of Israel. Back in chapter 1, you'll remember in verse 29, this is what John the Baptist said. He saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested in Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, the idea is at first, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And here it is, verse 34. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And so John served as this shining light in a dark place, which really attracted a crowd. And, and it was almost like, uh, you know, a light tracks moths, right? And, and they all kind of flutter around the light, and it's, they're, they're curi- curious, they're intrigued by the light, and, and so people were excited, they were intrigued about John the Baptist, and they, they flocked to see him and hear him, and many of them repented and were baptized, but not the Jewish religious leaders. All they went out to do was to uh, critique him, to analyze him, to investigate him, to criticize him, but they refused to submit to him. Us? Jews be baptized? You've got to be kidding me. No way. Not, in, not, not, not over our dead bodies will we be, we be baptized. That's for Gentile dogs. They're, those who are the people that need to get baptized. And so they were unreceptive to John the Baptist's testimony. However, that wasn't the only testimony floating around about Jesus. In fact, there was even a, a, a better testimony, a greater testimony, um, that they should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and that was his miracle-working power. That's the second uh, witness that he, he brings forth, he calls forth, is his miraculous works. Verse 36, But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. and I, I got something better. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Listen, John could have missed it. He 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 may have not known who I was. Okay, let's just grant it. Okay, let's just say for the sake of argument he was wrong. That's fine. Okay? His testimony wasn't true, it wasn't accurate, but look at all the miracles I did. And John included seven of those miracles. We've already seen him turn water into wine, uh, heal the nobleman's son, heal the invalid at the pool. In the next chapter, chapter 6, we're going to see him, see him feed the 5,000. He's going to walk on water. Chapter 9, he's going to heal the man born blind. And then in chapter 11, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the point is, Jesus is simply saying, listen, my miracles, my ability to do miracles prove that I am God's son. I mean, even Nicodemus understood that John chapter 3 verse 2 he said rabbi we know that you've come from god as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless god is with him the the man that was born blind in defense of jesus when he was being criticized for healing this guy he said if this man were not from god he could do nothing Chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus said, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. And so Jesus' miracles were another witness to the fact that he was indeed God. But then he calls a third witness. And if John the Baptist wasn't enough, and if his miraculous works were not enough, how about bringing God the Father himself to sit on the witness stand? Notice what he says in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who sent, whom he sent. In other words, you, you may not believe John the Baptist. You may think he's just some crazy guy dressed up in some camel hair eating bugs and honey out in the wilderness, right? You You can minimize that guy. And maybe you've not witnessed one of the miracles, or maybe you think, well, you know, maybe he's doing that from the power of demons, we can't be sure, maybe he's just a magician. Listen, how can you deny the fact that the Father himself verified me as his son three times? Once at the baptism, you remember, when John was baptizing Jesus, It says the heavens opened, a dove came down, and John's already told us that in in John 1. But it says a voice came out of heaven and said, What? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was God talking, affirming that this is my Son. It happened again at his transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, right? Peter, James, and John, up on the mountain of, uh, with Jesus. And all of a sudden, he transforms and he reveals his glory. And, and, and there's some Old Testament prophets there. And, and, and they're like, oh, this is amazing. Let's set up some little tents and stay here forever. And that's when they heard a voice from heaven that said, this is my what? Beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This happened a third time, not in those same terms, but in, in John chapter 12. This is interesting. I wasn't aware of this. Until studying this, John chapter 12, verse 27, this is after the triumphal entry when Jesus was foretelling his death. He said, now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So here he is praying, talking to God as his father, asking God to save him, to glorify his name. And everybody's like going, there he goes, cuckoo, right? He's talking to God again like he's his father. Well, then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Well, maybe this guy's not as crazy as we thought he is. He's getting an answer, right? And now I'm even hearing voices, right? But this is God's voice. And so here was audible evidence from God himself, from heaven above, that Jesus was his beloved son, and yet the Jews still refused to believe in him, which exposed the fact that they didn't know God. They didn't hear his voice. They had not seen him. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him who he sent. So they didn't have a clue about God and his word, which, man, that rubbed these guys real wrong because that's what they prided themselves in the most. They were very self-righteous and they claimed to know God and and to know his word. And Jesus says, "You you you don't have a clue about God and his word. Because if you did, you'd be receiving me rather than rejecting me. And then he saves his, his, his best witness for last. You say, well, what could be any better than God himself taking the witness in? How about God's word? The scriptures. And again, this is, I think, uh, another evidence that God has exalted his word to the same level of his name. It says that in the Psalms. That God has very high regard for His Word. That's why we always talk about here at Lakeside, we need to have a high view of God and a high view of His Word. Because God has put them on the same level. It, it, God's Word is God's revelation, it, it's, it's God in print, if you will. When, when we look at the Word of God, it's like you, you're looking into the face of God. And so He brings the Scriptures to the witness stand. It's almost as if He takes the Bible and He sets it there in the chair and said, These are going to testify. Not only for me, but they're going to testify against you. And so this is almost like a double witness where it's not only going to affirm who he is um, and, 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 and serve him, but it's also going to serve to testify against them. Notice verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I thought this was interesting, after the destruction of the Temple of of Solomon in in 586 B.C., the Jews no longer had a place to go worship, to perform their rituals and their sacrifices, and so they they channeled all that time and that that energy uh, towards the Scriptures. Rather than going to the Temple, they went to the Scriptures, and, and so they would pour over the, the, Old, testimony, uh, excuse me, the Old Testament and they would endeavor to, to, to extract the fullest possible meaning from its words because they believed that actually studying the Bible would bring them eternal life. But as they were studying the Scriptures, they totally missed the whole point of the Scriptures. They studied them fastidiously and memorized them and copied them And yet, despite all the time and attention they gave to God's word, they failed to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the types and all the the, the foreshadowings and all the prophecies of the coming Messiah. In fact, if you remember, even Jesus' own disciples missed it. In Luke chapter 24, uh, when Jesus met up with those two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and they were still trying to figure out what in the world just happened these last three days, our our leader died and then somebody said he rose from the dead and we're not sure what to believe. And he said this in in Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Basically, Jesus just exposited the Old Testament and said, hey, here I am and here's another picture and this is talking about me and this was a type of me and and this was a foreshadowing me and this is a prophecy of me. You remember how the Philip on, uh, helped came alongside the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And he was reading the book of Isaiah. In fact, he was reading Isaiah 53. And he said, "Hey, do you understand what you're reading?" He says, "How do I how would I understand if nobody explains it to me?" And so he went to explain and describe, "Hey, this is Jesus. Isaiah was talking about Jesus." And the guy got saved and was baptized. And again, this is just a good reminder for us that the main subject of the Old Testament is the coming of Christ. And and we better not miss that. You say, well, man, how do they miss it? Well, listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. Talking about the Jews, he says, But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same Veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There's devout Jews who are sitting in synagogues week after week, and the Old Testament scriptures are being read and studied, and they've yet to make the connection that Jesus is the Messiah that they're still waiting for. Why? Because it says their minds are hardened and there's a a veil over their heart and the only way it will be lifted is if they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and the veil will be taken away. You know, it's easy for us to criticize the Jews for not seeing Jesus as their Messiah, embracing Him as their Messiah, but we have to also admit that there are I think many, quote unquote, Bible scholars, students of Scripture, who may know the Scriptures backwards and forwards, but they don't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe they have more of an analytical understanding of the Bible. There's people that just view the Bible as simply literature. And they know the Bible better than I do, better than all of us combined, but it's just a book to them. They don't see it as a love letter from God. It'd be maybe comparing uh, looking out a window at a sunrise versus analyzing the window itself. Imagine if you were over at the window here and you saw the sun coming up and it was this gorgeous sunrise. You're like, hey, Ken, come on over. You've got to check this out. It's gorgeous and, and I get up to the window, and you're looking through the window out of the sunrise, and just stunned, and I'm like going, I can't get past the window, and oh, the window's kind of dirty, and I got to clean that a little bit, and uh, look at this frame, that frame's really cool. I mean, this is, I uh, start analyzing the frame, and I'm, I'm so focused on the window, I'm not seeing what the window is supposed to show me. The window is a means to an end. This is a means to an end that it would show us Christ. And so sometimes we get so wrapped around the technicalities of the text that we miss the beauties of Christ. I appreciate what Chuck Swindoll said at this point. He said, quote, for the professional minister, hello, that's me, or the serious student of Scripture, hopefully that's you, it's easy to become enraptured with exegesis instead of Jesus, carrying on a love affair with the printed page rather than with the person of Christ. The Bible was given not simply as a legal document or a self-help book, but as a love letter. And if that letter doesn't draw us irresistibly toward Christ, then it's possible that we, like those Jews, do not have His Word abiding in us. It's just more of an academic exercise, but there's really nothing truly spiritual or devotional about it. Notice verse 41, he goes on, I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only? I mean, Jesus is just getting after him at this point. He's saying, listen, you you guys claim to love God, but based on how you're treating his son, your love is phony. And he said, in fact, I I even come in the name of the Father and you reject me. But there's other false messiahs that will come and they'll they'll come in their own name and you are going to embrace them. You're going to accept them. Why? Because you can relate to them. Because it's all about them. They they seek men's approval rather than God's approval. He said, I don't seek men's approval. I just seek God's approval. But see, you, 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 you seek men's approval, and that's why you connect with these false messiahs who are seeking men's approval. See, Judaism is a religion of human merit in which you earn your salvation through good deeds and keeping the requirements of the law. And so it's very easy to, to, to want to, uh, to, to pride yourself, if you will, and to, to get men's praise. Like, oh, wow, how many times did you do this today? And how many times did you pray? And how many verses did you memorize? And how, how, how long was your quiet time, right? It's this legalistic, I want the praise of men rather than the praise of God. That's why Jesus said, listen, when you pray, go into your closet. Don't let anybody else know you're doing it. Don't do it for the praise of men. Do it for the praise of God. One commentator I thought was very insightful in making application of this to our lives He said the Jews were more interested in the approval of their fellow man than they were in God's approval. They were afraid of what their friends would say if they left Judaism. They were not willing to endure the reproach and suffering which would be heaped upon them if they became followers of the Lord Jesus. Some of you may feel that same fear, that unwillingness to endure the reproach. You might suffer to be a true, radical, devoted disciple of Jesus Christ at your your school, on your campus, or at your workplace, or in your neighborhood, or maybe even in your own home. He said this, as long as a person is afraid of what others will say or do, he cannot be saved. In order to believe on the Lord Jesus, one must desire God's approval more than anyone else's. Hopefully that'll be an encouragement to any of you who may be on the fence, right? And, and, and worrying about what people are going to think of you if you make the commitment to become a Christian, to follow Christ. See God's approval, and you'll be blessed. Look at verse 45. He turns up the heat even more. He says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, and in whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is like, you know what, guys? I don't even have to condemn you, okay? I don't have to accuse you of anything because your own scriptures accuse you. They cast judgment on you. The very scriptures that that you use to defend your religion, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, bear witness against you. And here the Jews were just obsessed over obeying every little detail of the law in hopes of securing eternal life, and they failed to see the purpose of the law was to show them that they couldn't keep the law, to show them their sin, to push them to the Savior, to push them to Jesus, to lead them to Christ, and so Jesus was simply saying, "Listen, if you really believe Moses, then you would believe in me, because he wrote a lot about me." And Jesus doesn't mention any particular passage that he may have had in mind. There's many he could have referenced. Let me just uh, give you one example in uh, Acts chapter three. This is Peter's second sermon that he preached after Pentecost. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the per- period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Here it is. Let me give you an example. Quote, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren to him. You shall give heed to everything he says to you. Peter was quoting Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And so he's saying, listen, Jesus is the guy that Moses was talking about. And if you reject Jesus, that's equivalent to rejecting the one who prefigured him, Moses, and prophesied about him, Moses. You're throwing your own beloved prophet under the bus here by rejecting me. I think it's ironic that Jesus quoted from the Pentateuch more than any other part of the Old Testament to make the point there's so much about Jesus in the first five books of the Bible that sometimes we just miss. One more reference, Luke chapter 16, this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man... um, dressed in fine linens and lived lavishly. And there was a poor man named Lazarus who lived at his gates and was longing to feed himself with the crumbs that were left over. And they both died. And Lazarus went to heaven and the rich man went to hell. And the rich man in hell was begging God to send Lazarus to his five brothers in order that he may warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. He didn't want his five brothers to go to hell too and have to experience what he was experiencing. And so Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I think that was a reference to Christ's future resurrection. And when Jesus rose from the dead and presented himself again, alive, was there this great uh, sweeping repentance from the Jews? No, they rejected him even more. The greatest miracle he could have performed, right? And they still rejected him. He said, listen, I'm just going to tell you, if they don't accept what the scriptures say about me, I don't care what miracle I do, they're never going to believe in me. So there you have it. The witnesses have all testified The evidence has been presented, and the defense rests his case. And so now you as a member of the jury, who have been listening attentively to all the testimonies, right, all the witnesses, all the evidence this morning, you must deliberate, you must weigh all that evidence, and you must reach a verdict. And let me warn you before you make a verdict, that this verdict is literally a matter of life and death. What you determine about Jesus will determine where you spend eternity. And and if I could, I I would just at least help you with coming to a conclusion about who Jesus is by ruling out at least one dumb conclusion, okay? I think we can all admit that this conclusion is a dumb one, so let's just get this off the table. That's one less mistake you might make in, in drawing a conclusion and coming up with a verdict, and it's the fact that Jesus is a good moral teacher. He was a good man. Right? Would you say, survey says, what, what do people think about who Jesus is in our world today? Survey says, probably one of the top three answers was, oh, he was a good man. He was a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis, in his classic apologetic, mere Christianity, says this. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus And Josh McDowell, in the same spirit of C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he simply says that when it comes to deciding who Jesus is, there are only three options Jesus was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God. What's your verdict? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this undeniable evidence that Jesus truly is your son, and everything he said, everything he did was true, and uh, that if we believe in it, that we can be forgiven for our sin, and we can have the hope of eternal life in heaven. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning wrestling over this issue, whether or not to believe in Jesus, Lord, that, that today this... This assertion and this confirmation would just overwhelm them, and you would uh, grant them repentance and faith today, and they would be saved today. And Lord, for the rest of us who, who already know Christ and have placed our t- trust in Christ, Lord, we just thank you that our faith is not uh, based on just our feelings or emotions or, or maybe just some crazy uh, religion, Lord, but there's clear evidence that confirms the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. And we can have confidence and we can have hope in Him as our Lord and Savior. We pray this in His name. Amen.